So welcome everyone. Uh, I am Carrie Higgins Bigelow. I am the CEO and founder of this wonderful place called Living HR. Uh, real briefly, if you haven't met us before, Living HR's whole purpose is to humanize work and lift up the people function and people leaders. And our team's doing that by making work better and including uh, inclusive cultures, experiences, uh, ensuring talent can really reach their full potential. And we operate a lot like an agency. And we do that from a people function perspective. Oh, there's some feedback here. So with that, um, our team is also a group of uh, really diverse and creative, talented minds that come together to ultimately design these amazing, inspiring workplaces. And we're really glad that each of you is here with us today. Um, thanks so much for being here. Uh, as the world is continuing to sort through all of the racial and civil rights issues now more than ever, uh, people really do want to know what to do and how to be an anti-racist, how to be an ally, how to make sure that um, we are not experiencing trauma and the Black community does not continue to experience more trauma. Um, as leaders, uh, we keep hearing that people are continuing to ask, how can I be more inclusive? How can I create a sense of belonging for the people that work with me? And you know, I think a lot of that has to do with the basics of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it's an important distinction that those are needs, not wants. Those needs really ultimately just have to be met in order for us to reach our true potential. So without them being met, uh, that's creating an issue in the workplace where it's causing exclusion and people are missing out on opportunities they should have. We have a really brilliant group of panelists here today that will introduce themselves in just a moment, but I wanted to personally thank each of you for being here. Um, I know that each of you have a, a true sense of purpose around this topic, and I'm excited for you to share your multidisciplinary approach to it. A couple of uh, reminders, so uh, please do use chat, uh, talk to the panelists. Um, it's hard to be in this spot where you actually can't see uh, the audience. So feel free to chat us up in chat. Uh, one note on that though, if you um, do anything that in any way degrades, disrupts, or uh, interrupts this event with hate, we will throw any trolls out. Um, and we'll also make sure we screenshot it. Uh, the good news <laughs> is that there is uh, an opportunity to enjoy the art provided by Drawing Booth on the screen. And so rather than looking at a bunch of slides, you get to watch beautiful art being created. The event will be recorded. And after the event, we'll share that with each of you. So while you may want to take copious notes, you certainly don't have to. Um, if you have any issues during the event, please email info at livinghr and Alexandra and our team will be right there to help. And um, I'm going to go ahead and say thank you again to Shireen Daniels, who's the Managing Director of HR Rewired, Katrina Gay, National Director of Strategic Partnerships at NAMI. Also, this is an opportunity to support them. Many of you already have. Thank you for your donations. Um, and Jackie Clayton, uh, who is most recently the Director of 
customer success at Hiring Solved. Um, panelists, I'd love for you to introduce yourselves because I know I can't do you justice, but I certainly think highly of the work that you've done. Um, and with that, um, Shireen, if you don't mind kicking us off. Oh, hello everyone. So I'm Shireen Daniels, um, broadcasting from the UK. So I live in Kent, which is just outside of London. And my work is kind of twofold. So as the managing director of HRE Wired, I just help companies get some context into the racial element of diversity and inclusion so they can decide whether they want to build or buy their own solutions to go and make inroads into that. And my personal mission is to radically improve the experiences for black people in the workplace. So I'm a mum of two, got a 12 year old and a two year old, and uh, my partner's ex uh, Estonian, so we have a blended family. Um, my eldest daughter is black, but my youngest daughter is biracial. And my personal driver is basically the fact that I am not happy um, to know that I have two daughters who I love dearly, and both of them will have a very different experience of the world of work purely because of the color of their skin. So that's what kind of keeps me going every day. <laughs> and that's good reason for sure. <laughs> Thanks for being here, Shereen. Katrina? No, you're welcome. Uh, I'm Katrina Gay. Um, I'm coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I am the National Director of Strategic Partnerships for NAMI, and in this role, I really work to um, progress the NAMI mission and vision to improve the lives of all people affected by mental health conditions and their families. Um, and in this particular context, context my, the focus of my work is really in helping, encouraging, welcoming, um, environments and cultures within companies. And I'm going to build off Shireen here because um, you're really reminding me of a flashback for me. I began my career in this field because I, I, because of my sons too. It was really my motivator. It continues to be a big motivator. I have three grown men that I raised and um, my oldest really struggled with serious mental health issues at a time when um, the belief was that children didn't get sick and didn't have mental health issues. So it was obviously the mom and navigating through that and navigating through my family's experiences with trauma and other things um, really gave me insight. And the reason I got involved in this movement was really to make it better for my son. So 20 plus years later, I can see great progress, but the journey continues. Thank you, Katrina. It's interesting how, you know, the, the life and work is not really separate, is it? You know, I mean, what drives us is really quite blurred. Um, Jackie? Hi there, I'm Jackie Clayton. Um, most recently, the Director of Recruiting Success at Hiring Solved, but have really branched out to focus more on how we can help recruiters and people in HR kind of navigate through that diversity space and utilizing data. The main reason I got started was because about 10 years ago when I was recruiting, I went to a diversity recruiting seminar that basically explained to me that I would not be included on that list, even though I was a black woman. And I said, this can't be. This, this can't be. Um, shortly after that, I did a seminar at a, a organization that hired me to train like 5,000 people. They asked me if I wanted to, st to start working there, but I didn't qualify because I didn't have my degree. 
Um, I say, but you can pay me all day, right? We're looking at these things. And then later, really started working and writing about uh, diversity for SourceCon and was asked not to write about women and people of color. It was one of those things where it was just a stretch for me. They wanted to, me to understand the full breadth and knowledge. And while on one side it sounded kind of scary, it really has opened, it opened my eyes. That was in 2008 to the breadth of diversity and inclusion. But of course, most recently, especially here in the US, we're seeing such harm um, and things visually. And um, it's just gotten to a place where uh, a hashtag isn't good enough. And we have to have the conversation and navigate it forward. But also we, we as commoners need to understand how data works and how we're gonna be able to get to that place because learning how the sausage is made is just not a pretty place. And so um, I strive to help people and organizations understand that more so that they can actually move the needle forward or get out of the way. Thank you, Jackie. So in terms of conversations, uh, we're going to have a good one today. Uh, and that's really why we want to do this. Uh, Shelby Hill is also here with me. He is our talent leader and uh, runs our practice area around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging at Living HR. And as well, he leads our practice area around leadership development and all of our programs related to developing leaders that are more emotionally intelligent uh, for the modern day in the digital world. So uh, grateful to have you here, Shelby, if you wanna introduce yourself too, we'll be co-moderating together. Oh, thank you, welcome everyone. Happy to be here, happy to hear it all of that energy um, and, and inspiration and motivation that brought each of you here today. So I think it's gonna be fantastic. I'm confident it's gonna be a rich experience for our audience and including myself uh, to just hear what, what, what you ladies have to offer. So thank you for being here. All right, let's dig in. So, um, Shereen, one of the things that I love that you talk about and I um, think it's really uh, a distinction that needs to be made is what's the difference uh, between fitting in and sort of like assimilating into this world that you're supposed to fit into versus a true sense of belonging. Because I think that frames our whole conversation today is there's a really big difference between I'm going to try to, you know, adapt myself and not be who I am versus I belong here as who I am. Right. And you know, um, it was funny because it was a few years ago I started to do talk about this distinction and it was because I was being asked a lot to go and be on panels and, and do talks. And one of the things I was really conscious of thinking of my experience is in HR, we were so focused on hiring for cultural fit, right? So we talk about cultural fit all the time. And it's this whole idea of, you know, the people that we have in our organizations are seen to be the epitome of fabulousness, and I'm not saying they're not, but the unintended consequence of that is that when you're recruiting for new people, you're actually not recruiting them according to all the, the, the shades and the wonderful and the amazing things that make them them. You're actually looking for the points of commonality that make them the same as the people that you already have. And the danger is with that is that as you go through time, and it's been particularly in the UK, it's been a big big thing about culture fit and there are technological um solutions to go and assess people for culture fit and 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 
The problem is, if you do not fit the main majority, you are rejected. Even though you have a lot of fabulousness to bring, you have a lot of amazing qualities, but we get so focused on making sure that you can fit in here in that basically what we're saying to individuals is you have to be like everybody else because you aren't enough. You are not enough the way you are because, you know, it's great that you're like this, but for you to be successful in our business, in our organization, we need you to be like everybody else, you know? And for me, that distinction between fitting in and then when you go to belonging and belonging basically says is that you bring all of yourself, all of your experiences, your perspectives, the things that have made you, you, and that have brought you to this day, all the intersectionality around you. And I promise you, there's a place for you in my organization. You know, you don't have, and I don't need you to be like everybody else. In fact, I'm hiring you because you're not like everybody else, you know? And that's the distinction for me. But it's taken me a long time to even embrace that as an individual, even though I've been talking about it for years, um, you know, hence now shaving off half my head and now dyeing it red, something that I thought I would never do in the professional sense. But I thought we are living in a new world, so that's exactly what I'm going to go and do. Um, because I've always dressed, and, and, and particularly my attire has been to fit in, you know, and um, it, that's not who I am. And that's not any of us are, you know, when we just conform, right, to, to just fit in organisation. It doesn't make for a very happy place. So, yeah. Thanks, Shireen. Katrina, Jackie, anything you want to add? I'll just add, you know, listening to this, I'm, I'm thinking about the why, why it is so important to um, have diversity in your teams and in your company. And, I, you know, I, I think this is always strikes me. I, I tend to kind of look at data and think about how that how that might inform or fit. I also really recognize when we ignore what data tells us, but it's really clear that having different people, different perspectives, different personality types, different backgrounds is really um, it's a good thing. I mean, it helps you produce better. It helps, it makes the creativity better. So over the long haul, it, it's like, it's like a big yes. And yet I, I agree. I see people, I, I also see one thing and I think we're getting better at it, but I see people thinking they want diversity, but they're not thinking about the inclusion piece. And what does it really mean to feel like I belong, which was the question. And that's where the inclusion comes in. And, you know, it, it's a work in progress. And so what I, what I know, even in my own experience working with companies around trying to make sure they're being inclusive of people with all kinds of different experiences and being welcoming to them and being inclusive is recognizing that it's not a, it's not a destination, it's really a journey. Mm -hmm. And so being open and willing to be um, kind of, you know, kind of on that you know, Oregon Trail a little bit, I think is, 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 you know, sort of a different mindset and can be a helpful way of looking at it from my point of view. Thanks, Katrina. Jackie, what'd you got? Well, I want to talk into it. Somebody asked me this the other day. They said, why don't you think we have enough women executives, black women executives and CEOs? And I was like, because at some point you can't keep it up. If you're working at a company for a number of years and you had all these things and somebody said something to someone we need to have people see hey you know i don't know if they would fit in because we're forgetting about the diversity and belonging and the 
culture of what the world perceives as being professional. What the world perceives as job interview attire. Why do people go with suits to go be a waitress at Chile? Uh-oh. Uh -oh. They've never been aware of suit when they're there. And so we've embraced this Culture of things. Hang on, Dr. We lost you. The Wi Fi is terrible. I want to hear what she's saying. I know, I know. I feel like it's fire. I know. I don't want to be I'm sorry. Um, no, that's okay. Go ahead, Shelby. What were you going to say? Well, no, I was going to ask. Call in to make sure that I can get this done. Um, and this was for Jackie, too. But so, but so, Serene, you mentioned like, you know, you never mentioned, you never thought there'd be a time that you shave your hair and dye it red. And, you know, uh, but you were showing up in the workplace as, you know, a completely different person. So it sounds like now you're like bringing your whole self to not only work, but in everything you do. So what has that done for you? And I'm asking that question for the audience because I think so many of us have done that, have shown up and not being our whole selves and we're kind of in imposters, if you will. So I'm just curious to know, what has that done for you to now bring your whole self, not only to work, but in everything that you do? Um, I would, I would, I would like to tell you it's been easy, and I would also like to tell you that, like, I woke up one morning and went, right, you know what? Like, I decided to do this. And if I'm really honest, my um, decision to do differently and to live my life differently was on the back of, um, you know, George Floyd being murdered and the video of of Amy Cooper in Central Park. And you know what, for, for me here in the UK, it wasn't so much about the fact that George Floyd was killed because to be honest, there are lots and lots of examples of George Floyd. What was happening here in the UK was everyone was going, oh my God, it's so awful what's happening in the States, isn't it? Thank God we don't have racism like that. We, we're not, we're such a tolerant country. And I was like, <laughs> pardon? You know, and that was in, and, and as, you know, all the events that were unfolding in the state, it was more and more, I was seeing, it's almost like this blanket of apathy was, um, was going in the business world within the UK where people genuinely felt that we did not have a racism issue here. They genuinely felt that they were very tolerant. You know, we talk about lots of multiculturalism and there was a situation where there was myself and then other black people were going, I think we're living in the twilight zone here because that's not my experience. And so through me, through sheer hurt and frustration and, 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 and speaking about how I felt as a black woman within the workplace, somebody who was very senior, somebody who was told to, you know, I've had people say to me, like, this racism thing is not a thing, stream because look at you, look how senior you are, look at the size of the team that you manage, look at all the things that you've managed to accomplish, so how can you say the UK is racist if you've managed to achieve all of these things? So, you know, and I was playing back all the things that I've been told, all the challenges that I face as an individual, but also managing a very diverse team, and I just got to the point when I just thought, I've assimilated for 17 years in my career, 
you know? And do I wake up in the morning feeling like I can look at myself and go, do you know what, Shereen, you're showing up as the best version of you? The answer was no. There were so many things that I wanted to say. There were so many things that I wanted to say, this is not fair. But because I was so conscious of being the minority in this sense in the UK, I quietened that and I quietened that. And until it was literally like a, you know, blowing it's a pressure cooker, blow the top. Um, and I just thought, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to talk about the experience of black people, if I'm going to try and help amplify the other voices of black people, I've got to start with myself, you know? And I wasn't happy with the fact that I had been assimilating for all of this time. I've been conforming, I've been muting myself. I've been so focused about what other people thought of me, right? Rather than how I wanted to show up. And then I just thought, I've got to do, I've got to do differently, you know, this, this, whether you want to buy into whole Black Lives Matter as a movement, whether you're more focused on racial equality and social justice, the reality is we've been living in a world where we have not been accepted for who we are. And it starts because of the color of our skin. And I was like, I, I can't live like that anymore. You know, it's very personal and very messy to answer your question. Thank you. I, I just, I would imagine that that has had your response hopefully has had an impact on at least one person in the audience, including myself. So thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. Jackie, are you up and live? I think you can hear me now. Maybe that'll make it better. Now you're on mute. Yep. <laughs> we lost you. There we go. So we get it. <laughs> I'll be back. So the change is you do have that code switching key that we were just talking about. Um, where people think that you're a certain way and then make assumptions about you and they don't know you. And then unfortunately, because you haven't brought yourself, they don't find out until later that they is a conflict and things are unbalanced. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm finding that causes a lot of the stress in the way that you say things. And it's, it's not fair. And I realize that it's going to be causing problems for people coming after me. And yeah. so I really changed and the way that I started interacting and sometimes like Shereen said it might be it's not fun and so I'm trying to really impact that in a different way and let it because it's painful so people might like it hurts and people are coming to work hurt and I think we talked before I want to call, call in black to work it's just a bad day for black people to work. I need to stay home. I can't take it. I can't do the code switching anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but people didn't understand what I was talking about. And now I want people to understand more of what we're going through um, as a, a people. But it's not just being black, it's not just being women. There's a lot of people that can't be their full selves, which means you're not getting the best work from these people, yeah. right? They're yeah. not understanding that piece. And so I just think mm. it's going to take some time. But we have to look at the reality of it. Mm. People are saying, oh, well, it's unconscious bias. At this point, it's fully conscious. Mm. 
Mm. It is a decision and a choice. (laughs) Mm. There's just no way about it, right? Mm. And so what do we do about that for our people? You can't say Black Lives Matter, but we don't have the money to incorporate a, a program for people. You can't celebrate Equal Pay for Women Day without having a salary audit and making sure that things are fair across the board. You can't have it both ways. And so there was a quote, and I started implementing it, where I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm no longer accepting those things and making the changes to the things I cannot accept. And at this point, we have to keep going. We just, it's going to take time, but we have to keep going. And I think, you know, one of the things that I most reflected on, and I'm sure, you know, Kerry and Shelby, particularly with the work that you've done with organizations, right? And you have so many people who say, well, but we've said that we want our employees to bring themselves to work. We've said that we want them to be themselves. We've told them that we are hiring them because of all the facets that they bring. Like, I don't understand how we're here, where there are still groups of people who feel like they can't be themselves. And I think one of the things that I'm now, you, you kind of have to go back a little bit, don't you? Because when diversity and inclusion and equity was first kind of coming out, everyone's like, right, okay, cool. This is about people belonging and people feel included. And I think what happens is we never started deep enough to understand the context of some of the experiences that different groups will have. And the reality is for black people is we have been at the bottom of the totem pole. And even when there were some of this, uh, um, the initiatives to go and address the fact that for a lot of us, we were excluded sometimes deliberately and sometimes unconsciously because of systems and processes and things because of our discomfort in talking about race and, you know, equity and equality and, and history and how we've got here. We kind of went four rungs up when we started talking about diversity and inclusion. And then we ran off with that. You know, we ran off with so it's, it's more comfortable to talk about gender you know, to some extent, you know, that there are other marginalized groups where people feel a lot easier. And, you know, particularly when it comes to race, I know it's not just about race, but it's, I kind of feel like if we can get it right with, you know, black people, we stand a good chance of affecting positive change for all the other groups that are marginalized, right? And, and I think it's because we've been unwilling to dive into the roots of what that experience looks like. So every time we've come up with solutions, we thought we fixed the problem, not understanding Again, we've seen the world through our perspective. And I've said this to CEOs, like you've seen a world where you've bought into this whole idea, best person for the job. If you're really good and you work hard enough, you will get all the opportunities. And we've bought into that. You know, you might call that American dream. We have the similar meritocracy argument in the UK. It's the same thing. And then you realize for different groups of people, that is not, that is not the case. And actually those assumptions are partly why we're here today as well. Mm-hmm. You're, it's so, I, I just, I feel the, the exhaustion, right? And you see it. And, and I mean, because we do this work, it, in every organization that we go in, people are, they're hurt, they're mm-hmm. exhausted. You don't need to ask if they are, they are. Um, and what I, I, what I want people to walk away from with this is that they didn't know what to do and they didn't know what to say. And they're, they're trying to figure out what actions can I take to actually create belonging in the workplace 
what are some of those things like right now from your perspectives from the perspective of what the people function can do what can tech how can you use technology what can you do to make sure the mental health and well-being of your workforce is okay what should we do what should they do now from your perspective we have like a list of i think it's like i don't know it's like up to a couple hundred like of things because and but i know that the core things you know, you got to start somewhere. And I, I think we're starting over, frankly, because what people were doing as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion just wasn't working. It, yeah. it wasn't even a real conversation. So now that we've got this opportunity, how do we get at it? You know, I, I, we, we deal with this a lot. Um, and, and listening to this conversation, there's a couple of things that, that come up for me, because for people who live with mental health conditions. I was just today, believe it or not, there are still places of work where you are excluded from um, getting credentialed as a healthcare worker in some states if you've had a previous mental health condition. Mm -hmm. um, there's still a lot of discrimination going on and there's been a lot of progress around that. But my real simple approach is, I mean, you've got to be kind of take on a learning mindset and be really, um, you know, sort of open to that. So I tell people my shorthand for it is learn, see, do. So really learning about the issue, regardless of what that looks like, it doesn't have to be formal learning. It can be, and, it, and that's a continuous process, but recognizing there is an issue and not being quick to kind of minimize it. I think when you say that's them, not me, whenever you see yourself doing that, that's when you need to stop and reality check yourself because we're all imperfect human beings and we can always improve in this area. So I always tell people, if you think you've got it down and, and it's just like you were saying, Shireen, you know, oh, those, the US, they're this and we're not, that's when I go halt, stop. You know, that's, that's a red flag for me because the truth is um, our world is continuously changing. We all know that. And the stressors that we're all experiencing in a variety of ways are, are having its impact. I don't know what it's like in the UK, but they say in the US, Americans can only handle one stress at a time. <laughs> now, right. We have half Katrina because we don't talk about the other 50%. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it's like, you know, and I, I've been doing this presentation on the year, you know, how did we get here? And the, the numbers are staggering. There isn't one person, even our most resilient or who we thought we were resilient, who isn't being impacted by the situation and the climate. And it's really a diverse one. And it's not just the fear of COVID and the unknown. It's not just the isolation. It's not just the uncertainty around our future. It's not just the impact of Black Lives Matter. Um, and, and so learning and understanding and being willing to lean in and listen and think, you know, what is trauma? What is generational trauma? What is, how does this impact all of us? It all intersects right now. Um, so the whole racial injustice issues intersecting the, the time of great uncertainty, economic uncertainty, the reality is there is a tale of two economies. Some people are doing really well and others are struggling and it's having a more diverse impact on certain populations more than others. And so what does that mean for us? Um, it, all of this is coming and stirring and, and the data um, you know, this you, is, is stark 
um, in terms of how it's impacting. The last thing I saw, and this is sort of shocking, more than a fourth, more than one in four young people, and then in certain professions, even healthcare and frontline people, people working in frontline, and that's a broad category, are having suicidal ideation on a daily basis. Mm. It's like a, this, so the next sort of big looking ahead, the next pandemic, but I will say it's an overlapping pandemic, is really about the mental health piece. And you cannot separate that from what's happening in terms of the racial justice issues happening right now. So whether, you know, if, if you are black, the, the reality is, I mean, we know a lot more about epigenetics and about generational trauma and what it has on us. It's impacting everyone with that. But if you also have a history of trauma at all, it's going to stir you and in ways that are really difficult and you bring that into your work all the extra stresses, the isolation, the adaptation that you have to do, and holy cow, the uncertainty. Um, how do I act? How do I take action in a time when, um, you know, ways I maybe would have thought about it before are different now? Um, these are all things we're all grappling with, and, we're, and all, of, all of us, everyone is. So my quick thing on what you can do is um, learn which is just keep, keep learning, keep paying attention, keep being willing to understand that there's a lot you don't know and just be willing to kind of, that's really for me key no matter what, because it forces us all to continue to listen and see that we're just human beings trying to be better tomorrow every day. We're just trying to be the best selves we can be. And the second is really important to me, and that's, I say see. And what that means to me is look at others and see who they really are and be willing to listen or just be willing to embrace their own experiences and their differences as well as your own, but being willing to suspend. And really key in that C is saying, it's not them, it's us. This is a we. And that's the second. And then the third, and these are, you know, kind of social action, um, how does change happen? you have to act. And if there isn't some action of some kind, the learning doesn't imprint. And so in order to really make, and that action can be all kinds of things. There's an array of ways for people to take action um, on this issue, on the mental health issue. Um, it doesn't matter what you do, but start doing something. NAMI has a big list of suggested actions and I call it walk, crawl, crawl walk, run. So if, you, if you're just not ready to kind of dive in and run, that's okay. Just do something. And that models for um, the other people in your organization. It models for your community. It models for you. And it gives you that sense of, I'm going to be doing something. I'm not just going to, as Jackie said, accept. I'm going to begin to start to do something about the things that I can no longer accept. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a sense of empowerment that comes from that, even if it's a small thing. Right now, we need to feel some sense of control, even if it's an illusion, over some part of our lives. And so to lean in around these issues that we're talking about today as individuals, but also as companies and as institutions, I think is absolutely more essential than ever. 
And um, I'm kind of excited about the fact that this, I mean, if something else couldn't happen, it's the fires, it's the hurricane, it's the, there's constantly this kind of level of what else can we take? Well, a lot more. And what we owe to ourselves is, you know, we know we've been through lots of diverse experiences. And even though we have trauma, um, we all have it. We all, we all have some aspect of that. And we know that this is infecting us all. We also know we can be resilient. And so what do we need to do to begin to sort of reinforce those parts of ourselves for us and for the other people in our kind of circle, be it the corporate community or the larger community, um, and just be willing to um, be authentic in this experience and be willing to be authentic and transparent about how we are in our own way taking action, I think is crucial. Thanks, Katrina. Um, you know, and, and it's it's so complex, right? Like the I think the the thing that um, we all are faced with right now is that there is a reality that we have not done enough, right? We have not even come close to doing enough. And I think the idea that there's some things that we really can take action on and the last you know, point of your do. Um, Jackie, do you have any like do's that we can go do like now? That was my question. I'm like, what can we do now? <laughs> <laughs> Jackie, can you hear us? Oh, she's still having audio issues. Do you want me to jump in, Kerry? I've got, I've got sure, Shireen. Yeah, yeah, I'll take some do's. Yeah, I'll take some do's and then Jackie, Jackie can, can pitch in. Yeah, 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 cool. So um, one of the things that I have said to board of directors and CEOs is I said, look, you've got to decide what company or what type of organization you want going into the future. That's your starting point because the amount of work that you do or don't do is in direct correlation to how the business that you're trying to get to or the organization that you're trying to get to. And if you don't know that, you have nothing to start off with you know so it's about your values so what what is important to you as an individual mr or mrs ceo what is important to you as a board what is important to you as an individual i would say this on an individual basis and go you know what is the world that you want to live in and therefore how much are you willing to sacrifice to get to this world because that's the first thing you know because there's nothing that you can do in this area that doesn't involve some level of discomfort, doesn't involve a lot of change, but also doesn't involve some element of sacrifice. And, and sometimes the sacrifice can just be your comfort. Do you know what I mean? And know that you're, you're stepping into a territory where it's gonna feel very awkward, very uncomfortable. You're not gonna know whether you're saying the right thing. You're not gonna know if you're, you're approaching different groups and you might say something and that, you know, so you have to be willing to start but it's got to be connected with your values. The other thing that I am very clear on, I guess, when I talk to people is conscious raising is not enough, right? It is not enough just to have more knowledge and that it's not enough to have empathy and compassion. All of those things are massively important, but those things on their own are not going to fundamentally address systemic inequalities that we are seeing across the board, particularly when you want to look at black people. So what I say to businesses is start with your systems. Look at all the different aspects of the employee life cycle. 
right? So think about not just because everyone goes, oh, well, you know, but we've already gone out to this group here when we're hiring. And I say, but before you are hiring, what is the job that you want people to do? How does that fit in? What assumptions are you baking into when you're coming up with a job description? Then how hard are you trying to go and get diverse individuals? Then what does that process look like? And you're basically, you're taking every single aspect of the employee experience and you're looking at where does bias, where does prejudice, where does racial discrimination, where does any discrimination, where do all of these things come into our systems and our processes? What does the data tell us to Jackie's point? Right, so where are people falling off when we, you know, when we're hiring people? And what does that look like? What is the composition of your department? How many non-white, straight, cisgender people are there in your department, in your business? Start there, just, just understand what you have. And then you start to go into what is enabled, what decisions have you made as a business to get to, to the way you, the, your workforce is composed of now? Then you go, when you're hiring people, what are the decisions that you make based on who gets promoted and who doesn't? Who does that work for and who doesn't it work for? That's one of the most basic things. Like I say to people, if you do nothing else, like I always say, you always have to ask yourself two questions with every single thing that you do and say, who does this really tick the box for? Like somebody's like, they're gonna have the best experience ever in our organization if we do this, 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 and this but who doesn't it work for and why doesn't it work for them? And then when you start to dig in, okay, why doesn't it work for this individual? Then you start to go, cause we've made an assumption that, you know, and it's the same. And the example that I use, cause you know, people always feel safe with this example is I go, when you look at working mums, for example, and mothers, right. And then people say, well, a lot of the promotional decisions that I found in the business I was working for was because, it was based on the CEO saying, well, this person works till eight o'clock at night and they've been to these social events with me and I really liked how they carried themselves when we had this client meeting. But then if you're a working mum and you've got to go at four o'clock in the afternoon, you don't have the opportunity to be doing the after work socialing, socialising bit and the CEO doesn't get to see you in that. So therefore, in their mind, they think that the working mum is not up to the standard. So they promote the person who can work until eight o'clock and, 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 and that's the sort of thinking that I go, you have to deconstruct all of that thinking, then you apply it to race and all the rest of it. So, you know, learning and education is one thing. I think Patricia, you asked the question, like where do you go on, on other than the internet? You know, I would say if you're in an organization, ask for the data that's already there, look around and just start asking some questions. Like, why is this the case? You know, I, work, I used to work in London a lot of the time. Um, half of the population in London is non-white. It's like, it's, it's the, one of the most diverse cities. Yet when you go into organizations, you will find that 99.9% .9 of organizations with head offices in London are all white workforce. Why is that? You know, and I use London as a great example because people can't say the diverse talent doesn't exist. Whereas you can say that in other parts of the UK, but at least that, you know what I mean? So you know, ask the questions and, you know, education is one thing, but use what you have, like data, ask the questions and focus on the systems because, you know, as much as I would love to believe caring about one another is enough to make a change, it isn't, you know, because fundamentally racism is a system. It's not just about the behaviors. And when you think about it through that lens, you can then start to address the inequalities. Does that make sense? 
Definitely. Sure. I have a question for you as well, or for anybody. So, but you pointedly said, or you asked that you asked some pretty poignant questions of these organizations when you work with them. I'm just curious, what's their reaction when you're asking them to look into the mirror about their organization? Um, well, <laughs> fortunately for me, one of the things is I do a lot of videos, shall we, right? So they've, all, they've got a hint of who I am before they even come to me. So they know they only come to me when they're ready to hear some true talk. Okay. Um, and to be honest, what a lot of them have said is that the, the challenge that you have is that if you do not have difference in your social network and not in your company, kind of to Patricia's question, where do you go, right? And so a lot of the CEOs have gone, like, I didn't even realize microaggressions were a thing. I didn't realize there were black people who felt this way. I didn't realize there were, um, you know, lesbian or gay people who fundamentally felt they had to hide who they love, even though I've said to them, right, so you're kind of going through all of this thing. And then I've said, but now that you know that, kind of to Katrina's point, you've got to do something, but you've also got to be aware that not everybody is going to have got the memo. So I don't know how much of your experience in this within the US, but within the UK, we're definitely experiencing some pushback to, um, you know, addressing systemic inequalities because there are a lot of people who are in the majority who feel like, why are black people getting all the attention? Because my life hasn't been a bed of roses either. Do you know what I mean? Like, why is the CEO spending all of this money on the back of COVID-19 on, um, you know, amplifying the voices of black people. Why are we now putting in quotas? Why are we now, you know, because now all of a sudden somebody who looks like me is not going to get a job. And so what I've said to them is don't assume that everybody is wanting to go on that journey. So if you're clear about where you're trying to get to as an organization, you will go through the pain. The organizations who will stop as the second it gets uncomfortable are those who are not clear on where they're trying to get to. So what I say to them is do not do anything unless you're clear on what utopia is for you. And then you can decide, you know, what you do and how far you take it. Because without that clarity, you will get carried along with the wave. But the second somebody throws something in the water, you'll be like, oh, 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 oh no, we can't, we can't, we can't. Let's go back to what we were doing before because it's all too, like, complicated and all too difficult, you know? Um, and there are some people who I've spoken to once, Shelby, and I've not heard of yet because they've messaged me and gone, we're still, we're still in debate and discussion mode because, do you know what I mean? And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of people who are still, you know, they're, to Katrina's point, they haven't even got to kind of crawling. They're still sitting there kind of trying to work out why, do you know what I mean? Whether they want to crawl in the first place, do you know what I mean? Whether, they, whether this will pass, you know, whether the movement will pass and they can carry on as they were before. I think we have Jackie's audio. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Jackie. Am I here? Oh, yay. Back. Hi, guys. Yay, we can hear you, Jackie. I can shut up now. You can talk. Go for it. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I would say this is something that I've talked to corporations about. The biggest mistake that corporations make when trying to have um, a diversity and in, in inclusion and add that into the workforce is start to, re to recruit diverse groups. That is the biggest mistake that people make. The first thing that you need to do is create safe spaces. Safe spaces for all of these various groups. Sometimes they call them ERGs or employee resource groups or all of these different groups. The first thing you'll hear is, isn't that bringing us apart? No, it's bringing us together. So we're creating safe spaces where people can feel, at least in pockets, that they can be their authentic selves at work. That's the first step. The next step is looking at the actual numbers in a different way. From the recruiting standpoint, 
recruiters are held to a standard when it comes to time to hire or time to fill or cost per hire. Um, but those things go out the window when we're trying to look at diverse groups. Another issue that I have is when people say things like Google has a diversity problem, when actually it could be Stephen, head of IT, has a diversity problem. If you look at majority of organizations by gender, we can say HR, marketing are usually female head by men. You can look at accounting usually is could be head by women, but have a majority of women there in the, in the space. But then you look at IT and support and majority white males in the space and then the C-suites white males in the space. And so we have to be able to look at exactly where it's coming from, holding people accountable through the process and cradle a grave because we're also not looking at, we can see how many people applied, then if there isn't enough diverse population, then we're not ready to make that hire, right? If you've presented the diverse population and the hiring manager hasn't selected those people to interview, then we're not ready to make that hire. And you continue to go to the person, you have to have exit interviews as you're going through the process, and then you need to be able to understand why you're losing those diverse candidates and seeing if the same managers are losing a disproportionate amount of diverse candidates versus non-diverse candidates, that's your sign. It's frustrating to hear people say, oh, we're still debating or we're still talking about it. You don't have to go to committee to be fair and, and, and to be a general nice person and keep people included. So, and, and I use the example of, of someone with disabilities in the nonprofit sector, that if somebody was sitting in front of a museum in a wheelchair and they were sitting there and there was no wheelchair ramp, would you take it to committee? We need to figure out if we can implement a diversity and inclusion program while this person is just sitting there waiting for you to help carry them up. And the issue that Shireen brought up is about people with COVID, like this person is getting more money or this person is getting better assistance. When you start looking at um, equality to people who have been dispropor disproportionately advantaged, it looks like oppression. I'll say it again. When you start evening out and adding equality to the people that have been disproportionately advantaged, once you start leveling it to being equal, it looks like you're being oppressed. And it's amazing how people say, it's not fair that you get your groceries paid for <laughs> to a group. It's like, okay, it's because I don't have any money, right? It's because I live in Section 8. That's what we call it in the United States. So like, I live in these things. And it's amazing that people will say, look at the equity piece as a benefit when the equity piece is there to fill the gaps that might have been ignored in the past. What are yeah, the that signs, can be um, Katrina, I was going to ask you this one. What are the signs that you would identify before it's too late, right? Like in the exit interview, we find out that we know that it's pointed to this manager, right? But how do we identify like in the flow of our work as we're looking at our teams that there's a risk that this person has been excluded, that they are feeling that way, that they are hurting? Like how do we help to identify some of those things. And then also please feel free to add whatever you were gonna say. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll do, I'll do it in reverse because it, I think it'll be better flow. So 
I tend to be very practical and work with companies to say, just do something and don't get overwhelmed by the big task. Yes, create something larger, but start somewhere. So there's a couple of really quick things that I have seen work. Number one is get as high a level um, kind of commitment and sponsorship as possible. The CEO is ideal, C-suite. Um, make sure that, that there's a, a true commitment there. And so I really call on the, the top leader. But in terms of what you can really do to begin to start to practice this and get your used to it, one of the things we began with years ago was a partnership with um, a traditionally African-American um, sorority and fraternities to, to create interns. So we had a whole intern program, very easy to do, but instead of just doing the regular intern, we forced ourselves to go to different groups to kind of recruit interns and bring them in and really embrace that and give that high level sponsorship so that we could, um, it very easy to do, um, practice that. Surveys I know are over, sometimes overrated, but I've seen companies really use those be very willing to be transparent about the results, share them and then use them as a baseline and really listen and say, we're gonna address the top concerns that came out of what people said. A lot of people will not say things unless they can do it anonymously. I think it's crucial to be listening and giving people the respect of privacy around what their comments are, but most importantly, listen. Someone, uh, Jackie, you mentioned ERG employee resource groups. Those can be really, really helpful. And then cross-pollinating those. One thing that we're doing right now is taking the DEI or the diversity work group with the veterans work group, with the working moms work group, with the mental health work group, and suggesting they create almost a hybrid among those for the special work group around the bigger issues so that it pops out. And what you're doing through that is you're also modeling another layer of inclusion so you're getting people talking across different perspectives and they're learning from one one another modeling um how do i take care of myself i'm at the highest level we talked about that at the beginning offline it's really important that people see i'm taking the day off or i'm flexing adding flex time for people re, re, um, appreciating that different people from different um, backgrounds particularly right now have different issues especially if they have young people in the home or elders that they're caring for. And many different cultures have a lot of different people at home. Recognizing what that looks like and what that means. Um, one of the things that I saw a company do that I thought was fantastic and everyone was like stunned is instead of saying, we're gonna compensate you right now for, for um, ink cartridges or whatever, they gave people just a free, you don't even need to give me your receipts, here's 500 bucks if you need internet access, if you need whatever you need, you don't even have to give me receipts, we're just giving it to you to help you improve your work environment how you want, recognizing that some people don't have private space or they don't have access, making sure you're being really honest about equity and this goes for young people especially when you're trying to bring younger people into the into the workforce um you know many of them um uh, are are decided to house in what i call a crash pad instead of home because they work and they don't have a lot of money and they're paying back loans and they have all these other issues or they're helping out family members financially um and those are just a few things 
that you can do um, and then create sort of cross-pollination, getting people from different parts of the organization to come together around a specific project that isn't diversity focused, but might be project focused, but making sure you have diversity in that and that you're, again, your, your high level sponsor is is really insisting and looking for these things and making sure we're going to practice what we preach. But in terms of signs and symptoms, I think it's so important right now. I've never seen more anxiety than ever. And as someone who lives with anxiety and has post-traumatic stress, I, I really see it because I know what that looks like. And it comes out in different ways for different people and really different personality types. So someone who might be a type A may start um, talking more in, 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 in kind of group settings may get more, um, more restless about having to sit in front of Zoom all day, um, um, might show agitation. Um, those are kind of signs. Other people might withdraw more. So it, there isn't one size, but you can look for that. Um, you can look for, um, you know, inappropriate kind of commentary, over-talking, under-talking, um, you know, signs on, through the digital of, of them kind of like disappearing and, and, and sort of missing deadlines and not knowing things. And that can be all kinds of reasons. It can be that I'm struggling or maybe someone I care for is struggling. And particularly in, you now we have a lot of Latinx um, um, uh, members in our community too. And, and that community is even very different and they're deeply, deeply impacted by Black Lives Matters also because of, of sort of the, their own struggles. And many of them have a lot, you know, they're really, they're, they may be caring for a lot of different age group uh, family members and recognizing that. So those are just some, some tips and also some kind of warning signs. On NAMI's website, there's a lot more information about this. And even in our company section, Stigma Free CO, you can find out um, information about at work, what to look for, what are some warning signs. And we even have some resources on working remotely and how to support employees. And then also coming back to work and re-emerging and trying to blend this thing, which is more the future look, what can you do now? Number one, when you look at the surveys that we've done recently in our own needs assessments in this area, people want access to private confidential therapy or help where they're not going within the company for it, but they want to know where can I go? I think I need to talk to somebody. So I think adding in resources that are going to easily point people and tell them here is exactly where you can go. It's confidential. Here's internal resources and here's external resources. Because the truth is, a lot of people don't wanna to go to those internal ones for all the reasons that we know about fear of, you know, we don't, we, we wanna fit in or we just wanna be discreet. And until we feel like it's safe um, to not be really discreet, we're going to need to continue to provide external resources. Um, and either that's either through partnerships with other organizations or, Kind of other ways to kind of, uh, kind of, you know, kind of bridge that for for folks. It's listening and recognizing these are rough times for everybody. We have all kinds of different issues. If we're really going to be an accepting, welcoming workplace, we've got to help people get their needs met and not make them wrong because they may be struggling or they may be stirred or they may have, um, you know, kind of different issues. Those kinds of things, I think, model real. Um, what I call 
a culture of caring as opposed to focusing on a specific um, people with mental illness, people who are black, people who are um, Latinx, um, uh, people who are young and emerging into the workplace and millennials and that kind of thing. Just a general overall culture of caring and recognizing that one size doesn't fit all. So you need to offer a variety of, of kind of strategies, um, I think can be very, those are all different short-term, longer-term things that I see companies doing to positive um, effects right now. In terms really of, quick, uh, I need to add this in, Carrie, yeah, really quick, because I've heard it a couple of different times, Katrina, and I, and with all the respect, and you're saying various groups and bring it all broad, but the statistics show when you bring a group of everyone together, the most advantaged groups will get the most benefit when you're in those resources. That's why we do have separate groups and bringing them together oh, yeah. and having a representative to be clear, to give the message that we all are a part of this together, but it's important that we address individual needs and give them like people to communicate with where they feel safe in that space before we just put it all across the board. I just have I, to I, I agree and I, I think thank you for the clarity because it's not it's not instead of it's in addition to it's very important to have the ERG that exists but if there's a problem to be solved in the company too, and you can create a work group of various people from the ERG, I'm seeing this a lot in mental health right now because every single group is having a big mental health focus, but they're all doing it differently. So they can continue to do it in their affinity groups, which is very vital and important for lots of reasons you're saying, and create some kind of way to kind of cross pollinate to kind of cut corners you kind of get the benefit of both it is more resource for the company and more time but i think well worth it so thank you for clarifying that i didn't want to come across as saying i'm rejecting the model of how important it is to be in affinity i also wanted to just add that from a systemic perspective you know if we look at what's happening inside organizations it's what's reflected in what's happening outside of organizations and so we have this huge challenge that the organization is trying to adapt and uh, evolve past the system outside of it and so i think that's one of the the biggest struggles that you know i'm hearing and seeing and so to shireen's point earlier getting at the whole of the system of the organization and then looking at the whole of the system outside of the organization and figuring out what can I do to counter affect what's happening outside to make it not happen inside. And so it's hard because, and it is hard, yes. Um, and so I think the challenge is that unless you look at, just like Shereen said, the whole entire employee experience, you look at the leadership, you look at the culture, you look at every policy, practice, decision, like the entire structure around it, you will never understand why somebody doesn't have equity, why somebody doesn't feel like they belong, why they don't understand why there's not a system that is supporting them and is instead holding them back. And so I think the big thing that we have to get at is looking at it both internally and externally and considering both and how those things, the organizations now have a responsibility to do more than what we're doing outside. And I think that's what is so hard. And so 
I just want to um, give everybody an opportunity to answer some questions and give your closing thoughts just on, you know, what do you really want everybody here to know about belonging um, from your perspective? And I'm just going to go Shireen, Jackie, Katrina, and then um, we have some questions that we want to make sure we have time for. So if you can just keep it really short and to the point, um, we'll make sure we have time for the audience questions. Okay, well, I will say um, almost like just be aware of the lens in which you view the world, right? So we are a makeup of our, you know, our cultures, our backgrounds, our socialization process. And what looks normal to us is not going to be the same for somebody else. So I think, and just because it's different, different doesn't mean bad. Do you know what I mean? And because we are coming and looking at the world through a certain lens, it doesn't also mean that our way is right and our view is right. And I think that's one of the things that I, you know, even for myself as an individual, right, thinking about me being a leader of a team and, you know, all of these things, it's like, you know, you know, Western culture, we, we um, appreciate data and logic and reasoning but that's a westernized view of the world that isn't replicated in other cultures. So that's an example of where I've had to go, oh, hang on a minute. So when I keep saying, bring me data, bring me data, if you're in other cultures and other parts of the world, they go, no, but it's all about the feeling and it's about the intuition. That has more weight. Neither of them is right or wrong. It's just different. So, you know, it's about thinking about how you can allow for difference you know, in a, in a leadership, in a cultural sense, because I think that is also something that we need to do more of. I, I would say as well, one thing I mentioned earlier that unconscious bias, we know it's pretty much conscious at this point, but on the flip side of that, what isn't as evident, I think, is confirmation bias. So as you're trying to do this work, check your confirmation bias, and that means if you think something is going to go bad, like you see it go bad or it didn't work out and I knew it wasn't going to work out, and I knew those things weren't going to happen, make sure that you have, are put that in the forefront when you're having these conversations to check yourself to make sure that you're not buying into confirmation bias and understand that because we are seeing something from somebody else's lens, when you're having conversations, it, we don't need to people don't need to argue the point of what I'm experiencing versus what you are experiencing. It has to be a understanding of that this is their truth. And then going back to what we were talking about earlier with the Maslow's hierarchy of needs of trying to get to that point, um, not to question whether somebody are, or feels discriminated against or left out, but if they are telling you that they feel like they don't belong and then working towards the goal of finding out why that is and making changes based on their recommendations. You don't have to guess. And the data piece is to hold people accountable. None of this works. And where it, it is a Western IC, but we have to, if we have the data to look at it, to hold people accountable to those goals and not get, use confirmation bias to say this is hard and it's not going to, to work, to decide that striving to have equality, inclusion, and belonging is not a valuable uh, goal. Thank you. Yeah, and I'll just, I'll just say real quickly, um, for me, again, it goes to learn, see, do. Um, and the see part is, is, is that confirmation bias too. It's being able to look in the mirror and see ourselves, but also look at others and see them for who they are, not by these other kind of constructs we think, seeing them as human beings regardless um, of 
of what their experience may be or what our judgment of who they are and what they're capable of or whatever may be. And when it comes to taking action, I think being willing to, um, you know, set an intention for it, decide you'll know that you're improving when so that you can hold yourself accountable to some benchmarks along the way or indicators that, um, that I know I'm kind of beginning to move in that. Again, I really think it's a journey and not a, just an end destination that will continually be evolving, but being willing to be imperfect and to make mistakes um, and correct them and not waiting until I know I'm going to be, don't treat this like a program within the company, treat it like a huge commitment that we're making. And it's a personal commitment as well as a larger corporate one. Um, I think is, is important and just be willing to continue to do things small at first that's more comfortable and don't be afraid of big things and just recognize the world's continuously changing. We're constantly enlightened by new information experiences. Stories really help us understand the humanness of what's going on. So tapping into those and just being willing to try new things and to take action. I think is, I just can't underscore enough how important it is not to check this off the list um, as something we did, even this webinar and say, okay, well, good. I just did this and I can report. I listened to this thing. What action I would challenge the people listening. What am I going to do differently tomorrow, next week, maybe this month that's going to help me um, be part of beginning to take some action to to make this a, a more improved situation for my company and for myself. Thank you, Katrina. I think that's a big part of this too, is that we all do own uh, uh, an opportunity for ourselves and to others and for humanity to make this uh, better. And, you know, I think that's, you know, the role of the ally and the ally can play a big role, I think, in creating belonging and being an ally for people within your organization. Or um, even if that's not, you know, necessarily related specifically to race, um, people need allies, people need to feel connection, people need to have somebody advocating in their corner. And when you do, you feel like you belong because there's somebody else there with you. So sometimes it can be that simple. Um, what's not simple is the challenge ahead, obviously. Um, one thing I wanted to uh, ask that we got a question about was around uh, microaggressions and how they uh, counter the and create exclusion and counter belonging and inclusion. And why are they really considered aggressions when they were unintentional slips in other people's minds? How do you how do you speak about how that makes someone feel? Why does that cause such pain? Um, and can you give some like examples that you've all experienced and heard? I can I can say one thing that is a um, microaggression that I've heard is that I speak so well for a black person. I've heard that before. Um, that I look too young to have a 20 year old. It's like, what are you, what are you implying by these? And, and the, the reason that they're microaggressions is because it's a little tiny thing that you said that triggers a big piece. And part of the reason we call it like death by a thousand cuts. It's because 
what you what we don't see on the outside if you can imagine someone get that got stung by a million bees and you went up there to just give them a pat on the back and they could scream and freak out because they are in so much pain you didn't know that that happened you were just going along your business and so it caused an aggressive response to something that's that's minor whether you can see it or not because sometimes it's an internal battle the aggression is happening internally and i think it has to be with impact versus intent and so when someone says that to me i will say i think what you're saying is you know i look really young but the impact is it makes me feel like you're saying something about my promiscuity as a teenager which didn't exist and you let them know the impact versus the intent and um hopefully they will learn to lead with intention and saying I think you're pretty or I like your outfit or I think you're smart rather than try to skirt around the, the topic. Um, but I just try to let them know I understand the intent, but this was the impact. So because if they don't know when you know better, you do better. I, I agree with that. And, you know, the microaggressions like that, I think that's a wonderful example of how you take it and then redirect them as a way of helping to inform them because it may not be intentional. Um, two other things is, and particularly, I think watching your language and being willing to learn when words can hurt unintentionally um, and being willing to call them on it. But I also experience and see it in many workplaces, intentional microaggressions, or maybe they're not intentional, but they're very unhealthy. And I will tell you right now, I always say, I kind of, I'm from Texas, so we tend to be very like, say it like it is, I just don't have any tolerance for that. And I really will often say to leadership, um, how do you hold people accountable when they're, because it is so hurtful, but it's also toxic to this bigger effort. It's like poisoning it. Um, I also, I used this metaphor the other day with the company. I go, you've got the CEO campfire and everyone's coming around it. And this was a black CEO really making some major strides. It was really fun to work. And I said, but do you, you do realize you have this other campfire over here of these, you know, obstructionists who are not in the big campfire. He goes, oh yeah, I'm aware of them. And I go, what are you going to do about it? Because not only are they having a campfire, they're stealing your wood and they're hurting other people and they're, they're contaminating it. And everyone sees it and they see you not doing anything about it. So hold people accountable if it's really intentionally and intentional and over the line and, and hurtful. I, I, I see people unfortunately being willing to accept that is just oh well you know not not wanting to lean in and and be firm about what's acceptable and isn't when it really is hurtful and i that's that's where i kind of draw the line i get pretty feisty so i you know the just to add to this sort of microaggression it can be you know very um um, um people have caucused and they're out to get somebody out or contaminate or sabotage the saboteurs don't have room for that thank you Shereen, did you i'm sorry i just I'm sorry there was a question but go ahead Shereen, if you want to you want to respond you're on mute you're on mute Shereen. <laughs> mm.
She's still on mute. We can't hear Not you. yet. But while she talks about that yeah, and she gets yeah. back on, one, one that I get all the time and I think it's interesting is everybody assumes the CEO of our company is a man and they want ask me to talk to him all the time. And um, I it, it makes me curl every time that it's just the immediate reaction that there must be this other person here that's a guy that's running the show. And so, you know, I mean, I think it shows up also in a million different ways for people that, you know, did you mean to hurt my feelings? No. And, and frankly, I'm kind of used to it. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily hurt me anymore, but I am going to call you out on how ridiculous that was. And once you do, people are like, they realize, you know, and uh, they realize that that's, that's not okay. So, you know, one of my charges, I guess, for everybody listening on this call is to, is to say something. Um, I'm going to do, there you are. Am I here? I'm here. Yay. I'm Hi. here. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I did it. Um, the other thing that I was going to say is like, don't, it seems really simple to say like when somebody is, you know, saying their microaggression that you can correct them. And I know for myself, a lot of the time I've been silent because, and, and one of the things that I talk a lot to leaders about is you've got to understand the power dynamics within the cultures of your organization. Because if the individuals who are on the receiving end of those microaggressions, if they are the minority, if they are the only individual that, you know, because they're black or whatever else it is, you thinking that like if it bothered them that much why didn't they say something because the problem is is when they do say something they become the problem minority you become the problem black person who's too sensitive who you know can't take a joke and because you're conscious of this because that would have happened that's happened to me a lot of the times you just think is it worth me fighting this battle yes. when I know what's going to happen, but also I have witnessed what's happened. And I think it goes back to Katrina's point about what also happens is every other black person gets judged by the last outgoing black person. So they will say yeah. when you start, there was like, Oh my God, there was somebody, but you know, like, you know, we don't have that many black people. But one thing I noticed, like some this black person, they were so sensitive. I'm so glad you're not like that, Shireen, because, you know, we can say uh. anything. You are, and that's a microaggression in itself, right? We've all, you know, and so I say to them, you know, understand the power dynamic and all those things that you say, you know, if, you know, if people are racist, then you need to let us know. If somebody discriminates you, you need to let us know. And I'm like, we need to move away from assuming it's that simple. There are other things at play here. And the cultural piece is what you've got to unpick that goes back to the biases, that goes back to the assumptions, that goes back to the, you know, the systemic power structures and the systems that are built on that. And understand what does it mean when you're oppressed as an individual? how does that impact your behavior but also how does that impact where you feel safe to be able to say that's not okay and for a lot of those organizations they haven't created that safety which means this the cycle perpetually keeps going because it's difficult to correct a director who says that your hair looks like something out of you know like 1970s are you joining the black panthers and that's like a senior board director and I'm not a director. Can I call that person out on their microaggression? I can't, you know? Shireen, I'll tell you who can. <laughs> so, you know, even in my own leadership group at the executive level, you know, it's like, I want to be, I can call my colleague out on behalf of that. And we have to be willing to do that, to be right. champions. 
Correct. Yeah. What level we are, because you know that's a really good point about the levels, the, the power dynamic. It's different. Is it what you can do as a say, hey, I don't, I'm not, Yeah, yeah I'm not comfortable with that. You know, I'm seeing this, the, these comments, this eye rolling, these little things I see, and finally, I just, you know, we have. Yeah, I checked in with the C, the C, the the CEO, and just said, I want to be able to mention in our meeting, I. Can I hold my colleagues accountable? Hold me accountable. That that takes that power dynamic out of it, but that's a higher level of, you know, then I get down the is it safe for me to do that? Right. And and that's the work. Well, you know, so when I talk you probably know this more than I do, that's the work when you're talking about cultural and leadership development, because it's and that's the thing where you need to be explicit with that. And some organizations need help because they've never operated in a way to hold themselves accountable for how they treat other people through their silence. You know, because it's the silence that is the killer with a lot of these things, not actually the behavior and the actions that you can deal with. That's the easy stuff. You can pull somebody up on that, but it's when people don't do anything or don't say anything. And, and that's what we have to break if we want to make our cultures more inclusive. It's Katrina's, like, it's Katrina's make the best statement that can be perpetuated throughout this is the learn, see, do. Um, and I am, one of the things that I've been asking people specifically is what is their path for somebody that feels like they've been discriminated against? But I also make sure that I have, I know who my allies are at work and some people know their allies that will stick up for me or say something in place of me. I'm not the one doing it because it's not the job of the person who is being, who feels like they're not belonging or being discriminated against to then be the champion of the cause. That's some of the issues. It's the, the power that, dynamic that we were talking about, and it's going to take somebody at that level to be able to do that. And so, again, through creating the, the group, the inclusive groups of members of all of these various groups that you can have that power dynamic, it shifts the power to the, this group where it's like, hey, we're the employees, we're seeing this, and we're going to say something about it to make that okay. It should have a direct line to human resources and other people in power to take that information back to make those changes. That's absolutely right. The person that's hurting can't be the person also defending, you know, I mean, that's, and, and that's where we can all actually really do something to the do part is helping be the voice. And not only when there's something bad happening, but when there's an opportunity to help promote something good happening, when somebody's doing an exceptional job at work, and they are somebody that's not being seen or heard as often, somebody else telling somebody that they're really an amazing leader, they have a lot of potential that's not being leveraged is also another opportunity. Um, I know there's a question out there um, too, and then I know Shelby had one. Sure. Um, guys, this is so much, so much good stuff here. One of the things I wanted to say before that I ask this question is that, you know, I think oftentimes the organizations are still in a traditional mindset and we have to realize, so they're stagnant, right? They're just stagnant. They think our culture is just this way and this is how it's gonna be for the next 30, 40, 50 years because this is how it's always been. And we have to realize that organizational culture is a living organism because it has living human beings that form the culture. And we want to be able to uh, embed an ability to be fluid to change to social norms and challenges. That's how we continue the process of growth with them 
you know, whether they're social injustice, injustice, that's how the diversity and inclusion and equity continues to evolve. If we just realize that culture isn't stagnant, it's forever evolving. If we can get leaderships, leadership to understand and, you know, through support like all of these entities, um, we can embed that mindset and that ability to be able to be fluid. So I just wanted to say that because I'm, I'm hearing like, to me, that's a thread that's happening throughout, um, you know, clients that we've worked with and obviously work that you, you, you ladies have done with other organizations. Uh, the comment that uh, someone had for me was uh, for NAMI. So with comments on high suicide rate, especially uh, in those under 30 and uh, 20 years of age, so studies are showing um, that technology is making our young people feel more isolated than ever before. So even though they're more connected than ever. So what can you say about that? Like, you know, now, you know, it's these particular age groups, you know, 30s and 20s, um, it's seeming like we're more connected, but yet at the same time, we're more uh, insulated. So what, I just wanted to get some thoughts around that. Well, I know that the data on that is, um, is mixed. So I think it's important to just step back and say, um, in some cases, we do recognize that um, uh, technology has, has, since we've had more technology, we have more suicides. And there are some instances of, you know, sort of technology addiction and other things. But there's also good data about how technology has helped to improve and bridge gaps and helped be a supporter. So, um, you know, the, the simple thing is um, limit your time and balance yourself out. And this is true for all of us, but in this, we're so used to looking at this, but right now I'm very aware and I'm sure we are all here my girlfriends are going, oh, let's get on Zoom this weekend. And I go, I am Zoomed out. I don't want to look at a screen. I can't look at a screen, you know, because I'm realizing the impact that it's having on me. While it's great to be able to do this. So I would say um, just being very aware of that. I also will give credit to some of the larger tech companies. We've been working with Google, um, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, across the board in, in other large media companies where they're really taking this seriously and looking at ways to put monitors, controls, while you may, it, it may be debatable restricting content and understanding how do we screen for content that's hurt, hurtful. Also, how do we look for red flags? What are they? There's some pretty amazing, sophisticated work going out on right now. And I want to give them credit because I see how much they're working to create interventions to try to redirect, um, particularly youth who may be struggling where we know this is such a big crisis. Um, but for all of us, I think it's just being mindful of it and encouraging one another to monitor our screen time. And that means all of it, the phone, the this, you know, sometimes just got to go do some cloud gazing. Easy easier said than done during the pandemic when kids are also on screens for school mm -hmm. you know not an easy answer I think we just keep working at it and keep encouraging solutions from some of the tech giants who have access to lots and lots of tools resources and data and they should be part of solving um, this problem as well and hold and, and encouraging that and I see a lot of positive there from those industries
Thank you, Katrina. I had another question that popped up that I thought was really good too. What advice do you have for seeking out allies in companies and influencing those that have the potential to be allies? So what are your thoughts on that or any of that? Jackie, Katrina, Shereen? I would say start with your friends. So most people have at least, I hope, one work best friend. <laughs> um, or your work mom or your, you know, I, I seem to be a work mom for a lot of people at, in the office. Um, and I have my work brother that I've worked with now for close to five years at a couple of different companies. Um, and and I, I, what happened was we had a really uncomfortable conversation. Um, we were both part of it. I learned things that I didn't know that people were having conversations were on the other side. And he listened and we had this conversation and I'll tell you really quick, it was amazing. One of the things, I was the only black woman at the, uh, the organization and it was time to take a group photo. And I was like, I hate this because I have to have a flash that if I get pushed back, I look like a smudge in the picture and I hate saying something about it because I'm the only one. And he knew this from a long, from before. And when it was the next time it was time to have a group photo, he said, everybody stop. Nobody's getting lined up. And he looked at the best light and he put me there and he said, everybody line up around Jackie. Of course, at that point I was in tears because it was just, it was like, thank you for finally for noticing me and doing something about it so that I didn't feel uncomfortable. And it, uh, then from there on out, it never happened again. So I would look first to your work best friend and then look to people if you know that they, they are supporting a cause or they, you know that people are feeling a certain way and let them know what you're, you're feeling it. I think there would be a lot more allies if we felt safer to share what we were going through. So like find a safe person and have the discussion. And if you can at that point, then you might want to elevate it to, to human resources because it can, might be um, it might be showing you a bigger issue that they need to be made aware of so that they can make those potential changes if necessary. Thank yeah, you. I want to, I guess the bit that I would add, um, partly because I'm doing a lot of work in this area and I'm really pleased about is a lot of organisations are recognising that they have people who instinctively want to do more in the allyship space but they want to do it properly do you know what i mean because i think there's i've seen examples of you know people who have self-appointed themselves as allies and then they end up speaking on behalf of or over um you know the, the marginalized individual which causes a whole host of other issues so you know some companies have said look we want to do it properly and you know we want to like not train people in that kind of that formal sense but just kind of understand what allyship really means and I guess how we want that to show up in our organization so I think you know for anybody who is in HR or a leadership position that is definitely something you might want to think about is you know it's, it's not like a whole 12 month program it could be a couple of hours but just kind of to Jackie's point at Katrina's point it's, it's a conversation about understanding the experiences of other people but also being really honest about how some of those challenging experiences manifest themselves in the workplace and then if you are an ally 
what is it that you can do because what you can't do is pick and choose being an ally according to how comfortable you feel on addressing some of the issues because actually that will do more damage than you know just you going yeah i want to be an ally because i think it's cool and it's great you know um so i think that's just a watch out i guess for you know people who self-appoint themselves as allies without kind of understanding what it entails and how it should show up Thank you, thank you. I, I want to. I think we're Carrie. How are we doing on time? I think we're at the. We're there. We're so there. Uh, thank you, everyone, for being here. We hope that you were able to get some really actionable ideas on what you can do to help create a culture of belonging in your world and in your workplace. And uh, this one came from all across the globe. Thanks for you all <laughs> being here. Uh, it means a lot to us. And also. You all did an amazing job. Um, thank you. Katrina, please get out there and support uh, her organization, uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. We certainly are facing a incredible crisis ahead. And I know the support is needed um, for all of us to be able to, to come together as humanity. So thank you all. Have a wonderful afternoon or morning or evening, wherever you are. <laughs> and um, Stay, stay well. Thank you so much. Also, our hearts and minds are with um, the families that have been impacted by everything that's going on from a social justice perspective, as well as the hurricanes that are currently uh, hitting the United States. Be safe. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye now.